What was it like to build and demo new things for Steve Jobs? How did Apple develop the software components of iconic hardware products like iPhone, iPad, and more? And what can we learn from these stories? In this wide-ranging conversation from April 2019, A16Z's Frank Chen sits down with Ken Kosienda, a longtime software engineer and designer at Apple, who was there from 2001 to 2017, who also wrote a book about his career called Creative Selection. They discuss Ken's unconventional path from freelance photographer to software engineer at Apple, his work on many core products from Safari web browser to iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, and features like AutoCorrect, and what it was like to demo new products for Steve Jobs, and more. Hi, welcome to the A16Z podcast. This is Frank Chen. This episode, which is called Inside the Apple Software Factory, originally aired as a YouTube video. You can watch all of our YouTube videos at youtube.com slash A16Z videos. Hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to the A16Z YouTube channel. I'm Frank Chen, and today I am so excited. I feel like I have won the golden ticket to Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. Because, look, if you're in Silicon Valley, the one chocolate factory you want, you're desperate to go visit, is Apple. And the reason for that is Apple has consistently, over its history, turned out some of the most intuitive and delightful and just plain awesome products that people use. And people are dying to find out how is it that Apple makes such delightful products. And so today I'm here with Ken Kashienda and I'm so excited for him to tell us all about the creative process that um, he used and his team used to create these products. So Ken, thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here with you. Well, let's get right into it. So maybe talk a little bit about how uh, you ended up at Apple because like on paper, hmm. uh, you don't look like the typical software engineer. So go back and do the long word. Like where were you born? And like, Oh, what, I, yeah. well, I was, I was born in New York, yeah. uh, stayed there on, on Long Island, yeah. uh, downstate. Uh, grew up close to beaches, lived there until I went away to college. I went to Yale. Uh, and got a degree in history. Uh, and then after I graduated from Yale, I, I didn't do the typical thing. I went mm. to motorcycle mechanics school. Really? Mm-hmm. All right. Ivy League, to, and what motivated that? Like you just uh, I wanted to learn how to fix motorcycles. Well, I, when, I, yeah. when I graduated from, from college, I wanted to do something that was as different from Ivy League yeah, college as possible. Yeah. Uh, this, this, I think that qualifies. Uh, right, right. This, 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 yeah. this was dismaying <laughs> to my to my to my parents, my father in particular. I can tell you, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I went, at least you didn't have an Asian parent. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, you would have been I, I disowned. My, my, That's my, like <laughs> my, my dad was 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 pretty uh, uh, pretty uh, pretty confused yeah. about about the choice. But anyway, so uh, but but eventually, you know, they got behind and, and mm. supported that. And, and so I, I fixed motorcycles, uh, and then I, I, I wasn't really quite sure what I wanted to do. I had this degree in history, yeah. uh, but I wanted to you know, kind of keep following my nose, to mm. find new and interesting things to do. I also did a, a lot of uh, work in photography when I was at Yale. Mm. I spent a lot of time in the Art and Architecture Library on the Yale campus, just yeah. reading, reading books, learning yeah. about art. Yeah, beautiful buildings. On yeah. Campus, oh, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting mm-hmm. architecture. The, the art and architecture building, yeah. uh, in particular. Well, anyway, uh, uh, so I, I became more interested in photography. I, wa- yeah. I wound up getting a job at a newspaper in the New York area, Newsday. Uh, did two years there, working in their editorial library mm-hmm. uh, in the photo in their with their photo archive, 
Um, but then that, I kind of decided that wasn't really going anywhere fast mm. enough, so I moved to Japan. Wow. And I had a three-part plan for going mm. to Japan. Mm. I was going to photograph myself, make, make a portfolio of my own work. Mm. And uh, I, I thought that it might be interesting to get some teaching experience. Mm -hmm. So I taught English. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I was chasing a girl. <laughs> so that was the that was the that was the three part, <laughs> three part three, plan, yeah. right? Photograph, <laughs> teach, chase a girl. Right. Uh, I wound up catching the girl, and so we've been married for uh, it's going to be twenty five years oh, in, in just a couple couple months <laughs> here. So awesome. Um, and uh, <laughs> so uh, after that, I took that uh, the portfolio of work that I, mm. I put together two years in Japan and applied to a fine arts uh, program at the mm. Rochester Institute of Technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, for a Master of Fine Arts yeah. uh, degree program. But th it was there uh, that I discovered the World Wide Web. Mm. And so I put my plans to be a fine art photographer or uh, maybe a professor of photography or yeah. you know, putting together the teaching experience with photography. I just set that aside yeah. and uh, uh, because I saw the web for the first time. This is probably mm -hmm. 1994. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought it was the most amazing thing. Uh, so Mosaic. Uh, when uh, and and the, the professor oddly enough loaded up you know one of the few websites comparatively that was available then yeah. Yahoo when it was text uh, only right right um, and so to me the the the, the interest was I'm gonna I'm gonna make photos show up on this thing I'm gonna take my experience my love of of fine art and 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 the liberal arts and figure out how to make uh, that come alive on the web and then just wound up getting more and more into programming I. I graduated, or I, I, I left RIT without graduating with any degree. Mm. But I, I, by that time, I'd learned enough to go get a job at a web development company and mm. wound up making websites and and this startup, that startup, the next startup. Yeah. I wound up at a company called Easel, oh, right. uh, of where course. I did uh, uh, Linux software development, making uh, uh, desktop Linux. Right. Well, every the, year uh, is the year of desktop the, uh, Linux. The, the desktop every Linux. Year for the last we, we thought that 1999 years. or 2000 yeah. was going to be the year of desktop Linux. It turned out uh, not to be. But not um, to be. But you worked on the, the Nautilus, Nautilus file browser? I, worked, I actually worked on the portion of Nautilus that connected to these sort of proto-cloud services. And interestingly, for where I, I am here, Andreessen Horowitz, we, we hosted our cloud services at LoudCloud. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. Yes. Um, and customer. so we, um, uh, we, we went ahead with that project, but of course that, yeah. that company didn't succeed. Yeah. But of course, Easel had this long-standing connection through some of its principals, uh, Andy Hertzfeld, Mike Boyge, Bud Tribble. Yeah, the uh, legends, and, right? And Macromedia. That, and that, yeah. uh, that, that got uh, me an introduction to Apple. Yeah. Uh, and so I started Apple in 2001 and started getting into making the web browser for Apple was my first, first project. That's fantastic. Um, and why don't we get into that story? Because as you tell in the book, you sort of started experimenting with the old Netscape code base, right? Right. Uh, by the, um, uh, called Mozilla, I guess, yeah. right, by then. Um, but you ultimately didn't go that way. It, right. Well, you see, it, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. And maybe we'll get into this more in the, yeah. uh, as, we, as we talk. The, the way that Apple worked in this period, uh, you know, during the Steve Jobs era, is that he would set this vision. Yeah. And so his vision was, we, uh, Apple needs its own web browser. Yeah. So at the time, uh, when I joined in 2001, Mac OS X, uh, the, you know, the new version of the desktop operating system replacing the old classic version of Mac OS that had been uh, uh, 
uh, shipping on the computers since the 80s. Right. right? So it came along with this Unix-based replacement. But um, that uh, uh, system didn't have its own web browser. It was still part of the uh, agreement that had been made a couple of years earlier with Microsoft That's to right. provide Apple with right. with uh, web browser. So uh, Internet Bill, Explorer, right? When Bill invested, That's right. right? He brought That's right. Office to the Mac, and then IE became the default browser. Correct. People don't remember this anymore. Correct. But that was that was the that was the situation that Apple was in. Is that yeah. this this exciting new technology, the web? Yeah. Uh, was something that wasn't under its own control, yeah. and so the, the you know the vision for Apple uh, back then and and even still today is that Apple wants to be in control of what it considers to be critical uh, a technology uh, that gets critical to its future, critical to its user experience. Yep. And as all the operating system companies decided, right, the web browser was critical. It sure. wasn't an optional add-on component. Right? Sure. Uh, Netscape and Microsoft famously got into a legal battle sure. uh, over this. So Apple arrived at the same insight. Yeah. And then interestingly, the two code bases that you considered to get Safari off the ground were uh, Mozilla, right, the, Fire, uh, the Netscape code base, yeah. and then Conquer, which yeah. was a Linux um, web browser, and they were both open source. And so talk to me about what it felt like at the time to be looking at open source inside right. Apple, which is a famous sort of like, we'll build yeah, it all ourselves. Yeah, company. yeah. It was, it was interesting that that the executives, uh, people like Avi Tavanian, mm-hmm. who was the, the, the chief uh, software VP at that time, and Steve, were, were willing to consider open source. Yeah. Uh, but uh, just to give a, you know, a, a, a brief uh, a summary of, of our full investigation, we, yeah. we, we considered writing a, a, a browser from, from scratch. scratch. Yeah. We also considered going out and licensing from a company like Opera. Mm-hmm. That was the company There were many that, who yeah, would license yeah, you browsers back right, then. Right, right. And so, but we, we uh, Don Melton and I, which was the two people we, we joined on the same day in 2001, uh, and, uh, to begin this this browser investigation, and we looked at open source because it was we were a, t- a team of two people, yeah. and a web browser is a pretty complicated thing. Yeah, if you right, it's harder and than it looks. It's harder than it looks. Yeah. So we thought that uh, if we could uh, make a compelling case to use open source as a way to jump ahead in the effort. Uh, uh, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, yeah. right? You know, uh, uh, it, it would get us to a point where we would have something sooner, and mm-hmm. and that was really the goal. And uh, it, it being open source, if we we uh, took the software from say another platform that uh, neither Mozilla nor Conqueror worked on the Mac, yeah. so we were going to have this opportunity to bring this code from elsewhere and make it Apple's own. Um, uh, and and really make it look and feel like it was a native program to the Mac. So that was that was, and 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 looking at that, it, it really just came down to Conqueror was one tenth the size of Mozilla. Mm-hmm. And so as a two person team, soon thereafter a three person team, uh, this just was the, the the easiest way to get from where we were to where we wanted to be. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, people don't remember this about the early days of the browser, but when we ship Netscape, we had to do it on 20 platforms. So every build was a, all right, here's the one for Arix, here's the one for Digital Unix, here's the one for AIX, here's the one for HPUX, and here's, by the way, is Windows 95, Windows 98, Windows NT. (laughs) Like, it was such a uh, cross-platform exercise that, you know, the code base sort of grew and grew. Sure. And so we only had to do that once, in that we took this Linux uh, code and brought it over to the Mac. Yeah. uh, and, And, of course, it was a challenge for us, so I can only imagine what it would be to kind of keep all of these platforms uh, going concurrently as you're, you're trying to make improvements and add features and, and make things better. Yeah. 
And so you ultimately decided on the Conquer code base as sort of your starting point. And then pretty early in the development process, you ended up building a, a stopwatch, the, the PLT. Right. Um, and so maybe talk a little bit about the, why did you decide to do that? And then ultimately, flash forward, like when Steve announced the browser, he would say, this is the fastest, like it was one of the key features. Right. And did you know at the time that you built the stopwatch that he was going to do that? Or yeah. like, did you get lucky? Or? So no, no, we, yeah. we didn't. It was not luck at all. Mm. Uh, Steve was very, very clear to us. Uh, in, from uh, at a very early stage in, yeah. in, in our browser development uh, process was that, uh, well, of course, he wanted to deliver the best experience out to customers. That's, yeah. that, that was mm-hmm. it. He wanted to you know, put a smile on the user's face, right? And so if you think about the challenge that we had, there was this existing browser on the platform right. that people were familiar with. Right. Right, and so now we're going to come along and we say, no, well, you you had that other thing. Here is this new browser that we want you to use. It's Apple's own browser, and well, what is going to convince people to make the change? Yeah. And so Steve thought, well, we're going to need a compelling argument, and it's it, and and to be compelling, it needs to be simple. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, his idea, his vision was, look, we, we, we need to make this thing perform fast. Again, thinking back to the time that, well, you know, the network wasn't so fast. I mean, yeah. some people were getting, you know, maybe broadband at the office, but certainly at home, yeah. you're still you were still doing dial-up, dial-up. Mm-hmm. right? And, and so uh, anything you could do to sort of speed up the, the, the browsing experience was, was something that would, would be attractive to mm. people. People would notice. And so he said, browser team, you need to figure out how to make this browser fast. And he told us this mm. a, a year plus ahead of time. Mm. Uh, so uh, this, this PLT, the page load test, as yeah. PLT stands for, was this performance tool that we used uh, during our daily development uh, so that every code check-in that we had, we would run uh, our, our, our page load test to see that there were no speed regressions. We, we, we had this, this idea that was really Don Melton's idea, who was the manager of the team. He, he had this, this little bit of sneaky logic where he said, okay, team, if we check in code and it doesn't make any speed regression, only two things can happen. Either the code will remain the same speed or it'll get faster, right? And, and again, it's just it's one of these simple things that tur- mm-hmm. just turns out to be this profound truth yeah. because as we would go over the, you know, the, the, the weeks, the months, mm-hmm. uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of check-ins, that's what happened. Either the, 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 the code either stayed the same or it got faster. And over time, because there was this speed priority come straight from Steve, we would look for ways to make it faster. Yeah. And, and eventually, uh, uh, the Safari, as, uh, when it was released, it was three times faster yeah. than MSIE at, uh, at loading web pages. Yeah, and so it, it, and, and yeah. the point is again, you know, this, this, uh, you know, Steve Jobs going out on stage. You know, he, he has this reputation of, of being this great marketer, you know, the reality distortion field, anything that Steve says you'll believe just because he has this, this through the sheer force of his personality. But this was more of a matter of just, of, of him just saying, well, we executed on this plan, we got a great result, and here it is. Yeah. So I love this idea that sort of Steve set this goal early on, hmm. ship the fastest router that you can ship, because when I launch it, like, that's what I'm going to talk about. Right. 
Um, and as I was thinking about sort of basically the software development process, you know, uh, it's rare for a CEO of a big company, and Apple was a big company back then, to sure. be so intimately involved in the planning process. And sort of how important do you think that was to sort of your age of design? Like, yeah, uh, I, I think the way that Steve organized the company and, and, and built the teams, built the culture, uh, was... Uh, it, an essential part of how we did our work. And, and the way I like to describe it is that Apple was this wonderful combination of top-down leadership and bottom-up contributions. Mm. So, uh, just, uh, Steve, uh, the, the top-down part, I, I, I think is almost well-known. Steve was, was very, very clear. He could be almost, you know, domineering, yep. right, in, yep. in, 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 in pushing his vision forward. Right, so when you worked at Apple uh, in software development, you you knew what the vision was. That was always very very clearly communicated, but it still was just a vision. Mm. Now sometimes he would get specific, but most of the time he just would tell us, "I want a great browser, and it's got to be fast." Mm. And so with that as as a, as a brief handed over to the uh, the engineering team, uh, it was our job to figure out how to do it. And, and so then that's where the bottom-up contribution comes from. He didn't say, I want you to make a performance test and I mm. want you to institute this policy where every check-in doesn't allow any uh, speed regressions. No, 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 we came up with that, yeah. um, providing that bottom-up contribution that, that helped to realize the vision. And then one of these other things, and, and perhaps we'll get into it uh, uh, a little more as we go because it is such an important part of Apple's culture, is that there would be demos. Mm. Uh, so we would uh, periodically, I remember quite clearly there was a 0 0.1, there was a 0 0.2 yeah. demo where we needed to demonstrate the, uh, the, the, the strength and the potential of this open source idea of the, of the Conqueror source code that we had chosen and of our porting plan and efforts uh, before they would commit to going through to the uh, the project uh, to go from 0 0.2 to 1.0. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and, and was Steve at the demo the, he would, at that point? He would he would see the the, the code yeah, yeah. very very often. Yeah. Yeah, so very, that's very a little often. unusual. Like compare that to sort of a typical Silicon Valley company where like you're doing these demos frequently, mm -hmm. right? And so in general, you sort of think of the CEO of a company this size not being involved in every single milestone, right? Because you're Safari on Mac OS. Mac OS is one of the many products that Mac or that Apple was shipping at the time, and so like it's a, it was it, it seems unusual that the CEO would be involved in this many demo points. And how important do you think that is to sort of? Well, the, see, and I'm, I'm actually going to dispute one of the things okay. that you said, if I may, yeah. is that um, certainly during the Steve Jobs era, and and I, I still think to. To today, here in 2019, uh, Apple didn't ship a whole lot of products. Mm. Uh, back then, um, Steve, quite famously, when he uh, uh, reestablished you know, re control over the company, he came up with that 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 product matrix, mm. right? Where we're going to have uh, you know consumer product, a pro product, a desktop product, and a portable product, right? right? And so we've got four products, yeah. and it's the same operating system, yeah. right? Mac OS. And so there's actually very, very few products. Now, uh, interestingly, mm. when, I, when I joined uh, Apple in, in June of 2001, uh, Mac OS X had come out, and so we had that two-part product matrix that we were still working in, and that was still four months before the announcement of the iPod, mm. which was right. 
just that, that beginning of Apple expanding out from being, well, Apple Computer to being mm -hmm. Apple Inc., mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You get into more consumer-focused products that, that weren't really thought of as being computers. Yeah. But because, I mean, the point of going through all that is, is that since there were so few products, Steve could mm. keep tabs on what the software uh, teams were doing, that there was this big initiative uh, to make a web browser so he could keep his, uh, his uh, he could keep tabs on it. He, yeah. he could find the time on his schedule to, to get updates on how the software was doing, and he did. Yeah. So it was sort of a focus thing, right? But, but Steve saying, look, we're not going to have that many SKUs. We're not going to have that many products. Like, then I can put all my eggs in one basket and watch yeah, that basket very you, carefully. You say, you say the word, and yeah. it is one of the best words, perhaps yeah. the best word to describe Steve's approach, which is focus. Mm -hmm. Focus on what? Great products. Mm. I mean, there in those three words, focus, great products, uh, yeah. you, you, you get, you, you can distill down Steve's approach, his formula to just a, 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 a couple concepts. Yeah. So you ship Safari. It's an awesome browser. Fast, native. You get a lot of people to switch over. Um, and then at that point in your career, uh, after having been this individual contributor that like shipped this awesome product, you thought, like many people in your shoes, time to be an engineering manager. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that story of sort of, you know, how you thought about it and then how you got the job and then what the job was like when you got it as your first engineering right, manager. Right, job. Well, um, it, you know, I... I I always try to think about well, what's next, mm -hmm. uh, and and I I, I don't um, really have a, a, a big career vision. Mm -hmm. um, it's because especially the tech world, it changes so fast, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so I, it always seems like you come to the end of one thing, and then you, it, that's the moment to really decide what the next thing should be. Yeah. And as you say, I mean, engineering management seemed to be yeah. like this 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 new domain that I that I didn't have a lot of experience. Uh, in so I, I thought that this would be an interesting opportunity, uh, and so I pushed for it. I asked for it, and it was actually Scott Forstall, uh, the uh, the ex uh, software executive, mm -hmm. uh, uh, really instrumental in in coming up with a lot of the uh, you know interesting user interface work in the iPhone uh, software project later, which I'm sure we'll get to. But he was the one um, who was in my management chain who mm -hmm. gave me this opportunity, mm -hmm. and so. Uh, I started working on the uh, Sync Services software for the Mac, which we, at that time was really still the software that would uh, be up in the cloud and, and would uh, help uh, two Macs mm -hmm. sync with sync, each other. Right? I mean, we, we didn't really have... There were no phones, know, right, no right, iPod. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's like you have a, a computer, desktop computer in the office, you have a desktop computer at home, or maybe you have a portable and a desktop, and it was to, you know, to get those, those uh, systems e exchanging some data, your contacts, your address book, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and so I thought this was you know, uh, you know, an, an interesting challenge, and you know, people were going to be getting more devices and yeah. things like that, but I, I found that very soon uh, after I got into the job that I was miserable, mm. um, that I, I hadn't really reckoned at that point in my career with what management really is. Mm. It's about people. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, right. I was still... Uh, at, at certainly at that point in my, my career, still fascinated by the software itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's what was attractive to me about Sync. It seemed like this, 
this, this distributed computing problem, and I was enamored of the technology, and, and you had client server, and, you know, right. and uh, all of this, and, and not really, again, thinking about how uh, the right focus was to build a team, build a team culture, support the people so that they could do the technology. Right. Um, and uh, again, at that point in my career, I wasn't really ready for that, and, and I mm. found myself within just a couple of months, I was miserable. Mm. Yeah. It's a... Uh it's the lament of a lot of sort of first-time managers, which is you think on the other side of it, of course I want to manage a job, it's the way up, it's the mm-hmm. natural hierarchy, and then you get there and your, your job is about shipping a team and not a product. Yeah. And a lot of people go through that, oh, I didn't want to ship a team, I want to ship a product. Right. Right. So it sounds like that's what you did. You sort of went back to being. A- yeah. Uh, well, I I I had a I almost shaped to say you know it's like a mini mini meltdown. I went to Scott Forstall and I said, Hey, look, Scott, I I, I don't want to do this. Yeah. I I I led you astray, led myself astray. I quit. I offer to resign because yeah. I know because and you know part of the thing was is that it was a feeling of responsibility that I had taken on a responsibility that now I did not want to fulfill and I, I felt like well the only thing for me there's really just two choices I could continue on being miserable about it yeah. or I could just go and say look I I'm done with this I. Uh, you know, I, I yeah. submit my resignation. And so Scott, Scott was like, whoa, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, just a not, second, not stop right there, there. I want to understand what's going on there. So I explained to him what yeah. I just explained to you about really wanting to still be in, in closer touch with the technology. And so he said, okay, well, just go away. Yeah. He was not pleased with me. Yeah. Yeah, but like we got you the management job you asked for. You said that you wanted, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. And now you're coming back, and now yeah. a couple of months later, saying saying that you want something else. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he wasn't that happy, but yeah. uh, he had. Um, and, and at that time, you had sort of started taking calls from Google recruiters, right? Or, uh, or, yeah, yeah, I mean, because so I thought you, that I was resigning, so right. I, I yeah. just need to go get another job. Right. So, yeah. um, so I actually did. I and I went to went to full went to interview Google. cycle. Right? I, yeah. I went and did the the interview process at Google, yeah. and they they offered me a job. Mm. Um, yep. uh, and, so you were serious. You were ready to I, go. I was serious. Yeah. I was serious. But I uh, turned it down. Yeah. Uh, turned down the, you know, yeah. that job because uh, Scott continued to engage with me. And, yeah. and, and he said, uh, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, sit yeah. tight. You know, maybe, you know, uh, we, we've got something for you. And uh, a couple of days later, uh, it was actually uh, uh, my direct manager at the time said, you know, come here. And he took me into this. Uh, into his office, uh, and uh, he uh, said, we want you to work on this new project, sign this paper. Uh, And I kind of thought there was just the barest little hint on the grapevine. So I just like reached out, I signed the paper. And he said, yeah, we're making a cell phone. Yeah. And you're now on the team. So that's fascinating, right? So this is a, a great part of Apple that's sort of very different than most Silicon Valley companies, which is in most Silicon Valley companies, if you get assigned to another project, there's not this level of secrecy. You're not signing papers saying, so tell me a little bit about that. Like, what, what did they read you into at the time? It was well, purple you know, at the time, right? It was see, the code name. You know, the funny thing is that at, at Apple, I, I was already under this blanket non-disclosure right, agreement. You couldn't say anything about it. Yeah. I mean, for the, the, the whole time that I worked there, I was under these document retention orders. Right. I would get these periodic emails from the lawyers saying, do not destroy anything because of uh, the, the work that uh, I had done uh, was then submitted in patents and you know, perhaps there was going to be patent litigation or not. So this is just the, 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 
the whole mindset, the whole culture of what Apple was. There was secret, yep. we were doing patentable work, we were, were trying to innovate, and we were you know, interested in, in, in treating that work as uh, yep. really trade secrets, something yep. that was valuable to, to, you know, to, the, to the company. Right. And so, so already super secret culture. Already. And then you have to sign something, which is, I'm going to introduce you to an even more secret culture. Even more. Inside Apple. It's kind of like the, you know, when you do the logic classes, like infinite sets can be larger than other infinite sets. That's like right. Now you're into the larger. That's right. Like, now you were in a like, bigger, bigger, deeper, <laughs> darker more infinity. That's right. Uh, it is a bottomless well, um, truly. And yeah. and so yeah, so I had to sign this additional NDA, uh, yeah. and uh, yeah, I got introduced to this project. It was called Purple. Purple. The yeah. the, the code name for uh, iPhone, and it was in development. And and my my job was to join the software effort, uh, which at that point was maybe six or eight people. Uh, to yeah, it's do a tiny team. It's a tiny little team tiny to team. do what I like to term the high-level software. Uh, the plan uh, was that we were going to take as much of the Mac as possible yeah. and bring it over and squeeze it into uh, one of these, you know, a tiny little you know, smartphone form factor. And uh, so we were going to take the, the operating system kernel yeah. and some of the low-level libraries, you know, the, the networking stack, mm-hmm. things like this, yeah. the graphic stack. Yeah. But above the level of core graphics, which was the, you know, the low-level graphics uh, library, above that, it was then I was invited onto the team that was going to invent the touchscreen OS. Mm. So we weren't going to take any of the, naturally, the mouse tracking right. or handling mouse, or anything yeah. of AppKit. Yeah. Which was the you know the the user interface level software for the Mac. We were going to make that from scratch for the phone. So what became UIKit for people who know yeah. about the the you know the, the technology for what became you know the iPhone software iOS. Uh, that was our job, and so uh, we started with it with a clean slate, and that slate was pretty well clean when I joined. Again, just about six or eight people on that effort at the time. Yes. Yeah, so they tap you on the shoulder. You're on the purple team. It's like six to eight people. So tell me about the people on the team. Like, what are the roles? Are there product managers? Are there UX designers? Right, right. So when I say six to eight people, that was software engineers. Yeah. Uh, there was also this other team of designers, which in Apple we called the human interface mm-hmm. team, the HI team, yep. right? Human interface. And though that was the team of designers. They would do... Uh, graphic design, animation design, but they would also do concepts. They would provide the thinking Mm -hmm. behind what is going to be the experience of the person uh, that is going to be using this this product that we make. And so there was this small team, half dozen uh, uh, software engineers uh, and and HI designers, Mm -hmm. and then executives, Mm. managers. So there was a fellow named Henri who was leading the the software engineering Mm -hmm. team. There was a fellow named Greg Christie who was the day-to-day manager of the HI team. Mm -hmm. They both reported to Scott Forstall, Mm -hmm. who was the executive, who reported to Steve. And that's and that it. it. That was the team. Now, eventually, we wound up adding, uh, over time, uh, uh, more people. We probably never had more than 20 software engineers and maybe 10 designers. Those two yeah. uh, managers and the executive and Steve, and that was it. So, yeah. So and, super and so interesting. There no were product no managers. product managers. No product managers, no QA engineers, no, like until later. Until right? later. Yeah. Yeah. So the core of it that sort of got the whole product going is software engineers, 
human interface designers and executives in that. Yeah, so we we started then uh, yeah. we we added then a program manager. Right. Uh, so there were maybe like two people in just managing the schedule, tracking risk. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, looking at the bugs, a couple of QA people joined, but you know, yeah. I, you know, at Apple, you know, certainly from my standpoint, I you know consider them engineers. Yeah, they're they're the QA right. engineers, yeah. right? And yeah. so, but still, that 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 still is all encompassed in in the, in the numbers that I that I gave you. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there, you know, and in a way, I say there were no product managers, but if I, I you know, I, I would say that we had one product manager. Mm. Uh, there's two ways that I could say it. We either had one product manager, Steve. Right. <laughs> yes, the ultimate decider. Right. <laughs> or that we all were. We all so were. It was really all our responsibility to, uh, to make sure that the product was going to be great for people. Uh, we all shared commonly in that responsibility. So that's really interesting because you sort of distribute the responsibility. Now it's everybody's responsibility, but you know, a lot of companies would think, oh, I've got to have a throat to choke. I've got to have like the one person. Um, but of course, at Apple, so that we one, did right. One person was Steve. Right? Okay, well, so, yeah. but, not, but then another way. So yeah. When you get down to the level of features, yeah. we had this notion at Apple of directly responsible individuals. Oh yeah, Let's right. Talk so about we had this. DRIs, yeah. right? And so uh, when I uh, started working, uh, when I was invited to join the Purple effort uh, because of my experience on the web browser, I started working on making the crunching down Safari optimizing Safari so that it could fit on a smartphone uh, operating system and form factor. Uh, and, uh, but then, uh, after a couple of months, uh, we had uh, a bit of an impasse with the software keyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we had what was really quite unusual, uh, really unique in my experience at Apple, is that uh, this was judged to, to be, that the development of the software keyboard was judged to be a, su- a sufficiently high risk and that the risk was not being matched by uh, a commensurate progress, mm. right? I mean, the whole thing was high risk, right? Right. right. I mean, we're going to make a whole new touchscreen operating system, right? So, yep. so the whole thing was high risk. But the thing is, is that we were we were making good incremental progress on most of those areas: touchscreen and the, the UI kit and Safari and messages and calendar and you know all of these you know the, the phone app and. Yeah. Uh, but the touchscreen keyboard was uh, lagging behind mm. all of these other uh, projects. And so one day, uh, it really, really, again, unique in my experience, uh, uh, Henri, who was the, the software engineering manager, called all of the engineers out, uh, into, uh, out of our offices into the hallway. We had a group meeting, again, about two dozen people, probably even less than that, mm. and said, okay, you all stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop working on yeah, calendar, phone, app, you know, the user interface uh, level software, everything. Stop. Starting from now, you're all keyboard engineers. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. Like the entire team. Entire team, Everybody's stop. a keyboard engineer. Because, because the idea was that if we don't crack this problem, yeah. we might not have a product. Yeah. So I think we need to take people back to that era, right? Because this seems super counterintuitive that you'd put all 20 people yeah. on one project. And so the uh, take us back in time. So the most popular phone at the time was the, the Crackberry, right? Yeah. 
the Rim Blackberry, and it yeah, has yeah, a yeah. physical keyboard. Has a physical keyboard, right. and so um, this was in the fall of 2005. And again, yeah. to just give the time perspective, Steve stood up on stage and announced the iPhone in January of 2007. Yeah. So again, this is just a really, really compressed time scale. So where where uh, you know, just a little bit more than you know, uh, you know it's less than a year and a half yeah. out from from the day where where we were trying to hit. You know, that target. Yeah, 18 months, and, not and, a lot and of time. And still, we still had uh, uh, really nothing to show for this effort to give a, a, a solution for our phone which would compete with the BlackBerry, right? Yeah. And of course, the BlackBerry had this wonderful keyboard, the, the hardware keyboard, the little yeah. plastic keys, click, 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 the little yep. chiclet keys. And again, you, made, you said the word crackberry. People yeah. love those things. Yeah. Love the product. It's a great product, yeah. right? But we were going to provide this this different vision for what a smartphone would be. Is that it was going to be this? That there wasn't going to be enough room for a plastic keyboard with the the the, the, the keys fixed. Yeah. We were going to uh, give more of the front of the display over to a screen to software. Uh, and so the, and so the keyboard a, had to be in software. And the idea of an all the sort of software-based keyboard was one of the design things that came from Steve early. Yes. Like, it was just like, look, this is non-negotiable. I'm not shipping a physical keyboard. That's right. No, it's a, his idea was that we we want, we need a keyboard some of the time, yeah. but we certainly don't need it all of the time. Right. And so the idea of the keyboard being in software is that it could get out of the way. Mm-hmm. It could go off the screen, and which would then turn make the rest of that screen real estate available for a customized user interface that was great, that was optimized for either the phone app or if it's the calendar, you can see yeah. more of your appointments or see more of a month view for the calendar. So it was absolutely essential that the keyboard could get out of the way when you weren't using it so that the device could be opened up for these other better, richer experiences in, in the apps that we were going to be shipping. And what problems were you running into at the time? Like, were people missing keys? Were the keys not big enough? Like, what caused the... Yeah, okay. The- uh, you know, again, I mean, it's in some ways, it's hard to think back mm. given how history has played out. Right. Right? That we have our phones now and, you know, maybe you've got, um, you know, I've got my phone here today and I'm, you know, two-thumb typing and I'm hardly even looking or whatever. Back when we were working at this early stage and, and, and we were all new to interacting with touchscreens, we found that we had this real sense of apprehension. Mm-hmm. Apprehension whenever we were going to touch a target on the screen that was smaller than our fingertip. Right? That was actually a really interesting threshold, mm. that, a, a, a constraint that we were, dealing, we were dealing with when we were designing the user interface, is that if the t- target that you were going for was larger than your finger, you could target because you could maybe move your head a little bit out of the way mm. and you could see what you were going for. Yeah. If the target was smaller than your fingertip, Mm. It's like, did I get it? Right. I don't know. Right, right, right. And so we we started feedback. Yeah, we right. didn't have yeah. the tactile feedback of that BlackBerry. Right. right, you could feel the edges of the keys mm. with your fingers. And of course, with the touch screen, it was just this 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 sheet of of glass. And so that's the challenge with the keyboard is that you needed enough keys to have. Uh, a typing experience, mm. right? But in order to give the number of keys necessary, the keys needed to be smaller than your fingertips. So what do you do? 
And so it turns out that uh, you know, through investigation and uh, lots of demos and, and lots of sleepless nights, right, that the, 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 the way to close that gap was to give software assistance. Yeah. And so Henri waved the magic wand. Everybody now is a keyboard engineer. Everybody needs to figure out how we're going to make a reliable keyboard that's delightful. And so what happened from that point? Was it like a, a series of demos where people yeah. were just demoing? Yeah, yeah what, what we did this series of demos. We see, again, uh, going back to way, the way that it was on that hallway, uh, and, and it was just one hallway, yeah. since it was so few people, mm. sort of 20-ish people. Uh, and, and we all had our individual offices at yeah. the time. This was not open plan office, yeah. right? Right. right? Everybody had their office. Mine, when I was working and thinking, I had my door closed. Right? But then, okay, so I would be in my office with my door closed and I would come up with a demo, an idea, mm. right, that could be represented in a demo. Then I open the door and I go and see who else's door is open and say, here, try this, mm. right? And so we would have this, this culture where we were all demoing to ourselves all the time. And when we were set off on this thing, you're all keyboard engineers now, well, we all just went in our own directions. Some of us you know, had uh, already well-established uh, you know, uh, uh, collegial relationships where I would collaborate a lot with you and some other people, you know, they had maybe, they worked by themselves. Some people had a good relationship with one of the HI designers or whatever. So we, we just cobbled together our own little teams, our own little efforts, uh, and, and, and started making demos. Yeah. And, and again, uh, trying to combat this problem of the keys being too small. So one idea that we uh, experimented with was making larger keys with multiple letters on the keys. Uh, I I started experimenting with software assistants. Maybe there could be a dictionary on the phone that the software could could consult um, to uh, provide suggestions that maybe uh, you know, much like we have today, that there's this bar on top of the keyboard that is updating as you're typing keys, giving yep. you some notion of what the software thinks yep. you're trying to do. Autocorrect, the yeah. author of Autocorrect, which is now not only super useful on the phone, but probably my favorite comedy genre. So, <laughs> the, uh, you know, go watch the Facebook videos on autocorrect <laughs> comedies. They're fantastic. Yeah, well, uh, sorry about that. So, so eventually, you know, the, 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 the bridge Breakthrough, if you will, that that that, that you know, made it made it possible uh, for software keyboards to really work in the uh, you know in, in a shippable product was uh, a software assistance to the extent that the software may change the letters that you type. Right. Right. That it'll change it to what it thinks rather than what you did. And it's actually, mm. this phrase is really, really important. I think really, really one of the important organizing concepts for so much that we did to make the touchscreen oper- operating system work is because you didn't get this tactile feedback, yeah. because you couldn't feel the edges of okay. either keyboard keys or any, any button or, or, or anything in the user interface, is that the software had to be there working behind the scenes to give you what you meant maybe differently than what you did. Yeah. And how did you come up with this idea? Because this is a classic thinking outside of the box idea, right? Like if you were going to try to solve this problem, I bet you you saw a lot of variations of uh, sort of key sizes and, you know, that type of thing. But like 
this whole thing in the dictionary, putting up uh, suggested words. Like, where did the idea come from? It's it's just this iterative process. Mm-hmm. It just takes a you know, long, long time. You 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 start with ideas. Maybe somebody else does a demo that that does an idea, mm-hmm. and and you had your idea, and you think, oh, maybe if I can combine those two ideas and 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 make a demo uh, that that does the best of of everything that I see. Um, and uh, it, it was just this collaborative soup yeah. of ideas all swirling around. And you just take the, you know, all of us were, um, th- there was a sense of friendly competition. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it was both of those. Yeah. Uh, we, we all wanted to do the best. We all wanted to be the one. I mean, I think we all had a sense of... Um, uh, uh, maybe a sense of ego yeah. that we wanted to be the one to, to crack this hard problem that we were given. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's all very friendly yeah. uh, in, 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 in the end that uh, if, if your idea wound up winning, uh, proving useful, yeah, you got a little bit of, of, of sort of geek you know, cred for that on the hallway. Yeah. Uh, everybody knew. Uh, who it was that that came up with the idea. I want to talk to you a little bit about this sort of secrecy, right? You got read into the Holy of Holies. It's secret, more secret than sort of other parts of Apple. And at one point, you decided, um, as you were refining the autocorrect algorithm, that there were actually experts outside of the purple team that might be able to help. But of course, they hadn't been disclosed. And so, like, what was that like to try to go get their help and... uh, it was, it, was, it was tough. It re- yeah. requ- required getting approval. It's like, well, I'm going to go and talk to these people. Uh, but uh, there was no process really at that point to get them disclosed. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, uh, really uh, you know, uh, at a certain point, Steve was still personally uh, approving every person that uh, was submitted to get disclosed on the project. But I did get permission to talk to them. So as long as I... I Told them I can't tell you why I want to know uh, how, um, say the the Japanese input method works. Yeah. Say, you know the way the Japanese uh, works mm-hmm. is, is that there there is this input method uh, uh, that there is a, a sophisticated way to take uh, the keys that that a user types and turn it into the Japanese language, uh, the, a text that 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 actually reads as Japanese, and so that uh, you know just won't get into the details of that, yeah. but it's seemed like it was similar in a way, I mean, at least yeah. in the thought process, is, is that we have this, 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 this real um, uh, software whirring away in the background other than, you know, different than, say, just like a desktop keyboard where if you type the A, you get an A, right? And so, so I, I went and talked to them, um, but, you know, in the end, it was, um, it, it was just more of conceptual help mm-hmm. than than really uh, you know anything concrete that I could put into the into the software. It just turns out really that that the problem that I was trying to solve, which is really input correction, that you weren't sure what key you hit, yeah. uh, was a, a, a class of problem that was different enough that it really required different solutions. Yeah. Looking back at it now, which is sort of the extreme secrecy, you couldn't really describe the problem, right? And so as a result, you got some conceptual help, but not sort of concrete design help. Would you think of this as this sort of tiers of secrecy inside Apple as a feature or a bug or, or somewhere in between? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is, I, I think there is a, a, a really underestimated power in keeping your team small. Mm. Uh, the the 
the cohesion, the small unit cohesion yeah. that you have, uh, where uh, y- y- simple things like it's, we're going to have a meeting. Who do we invite? Mm-hmm. Well, everybody. Mm. <laughs> right, right, right. We're going to have a team meeting. Yeah. yeah, right, where we're going to talk about uh, important milestones. Or we're going to call everybody out of their office. Henri could say, hey, everybody, uh, come out of your offices, please. And, every, and, and right. within 30 seconds, everybody was there. standing there, yeah. right? Um, so, you, you know, you get these, these, there are advantages to keeping things really, really small. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, then there is the disadvantage that uh, when you are trying to tackle difficult problems, yeah. Uh, you may not have all of the talent that you need. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, you may not have a sufficient amount of diversity. Right. 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 That, that, that all the, the, you know, especially, you know, a company like Apple is trying to make products for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you design for everybody? Right. Right. If, if the, the yep. design team isn't, right. isn't a microcosm yep. of everybody. Yep. And so there are these really profound challenges, right? Yep. Uh, you know, back in these times, we did the best that we could yep. uh, within the constraints. And, you know, and, and we tried to then really tap into the benefits that, that uh, the, the smallness and the secrecy gave us as well. Yeah. Another funny thing that I learned reading your book is the, the secrecy was so extreme that like you didn't even know what the product was going to be named, and so like the word iPhone wasn't even in the dictionary. That's until, right. Like after Steve launched, <laughs> that's absolutely true. So so there was uh, we were all heading toward this this uh, announcement yeah. uh, for the iPhone uh, in January of two thousand seven, and um, so if you, if you remember how Steve introduced the product, he. Uh, he said, uh, you know, give his you know, very dramatic introduction, you know, he, he said that something to the effect of, well, uh, we've got, you know, a groundbreaking product and, you know, and you, you, you're privileged to be involved in, you know, a product like this maybe once in your career. But mm-hmm. Steve, he had been involved with the, you know, the Mac mm-hmm. and then the iPod. Mm-hmm. And he said, we're going to have three new products right. of this class today. Yeah. And I'm saying like, wait, there were two other secret projects that I didn't know about. I mean, truly for a moment, yeah. I, 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 I didn't get, and it's like, oh, no, no, no. It's just how he's going to tell the story. my product he's talking That's about. That's right, about he's, it's going to awesome. be you know, the phone yeah. and it's you know, going to be the, you know, the touchscreen music player yeah. and then the, you know, the internet communicator. Yeah. And that, oh, no, this is actually all just one product and we'll call it iPhone. And when he said that, that's when I knew that I was going to have to go back the next day and add iPhone to the autocorrection dictionary. That's awesome that he fooled you, too, because he fooled me. Like, yeah. hook, line, I got it. And, like, you were working on it, so I don't feel quite as bad. But well, you just, I mean, again, yeah, I it's, it's the, the secrecy. The, you know, I, I have to admit that it was just a moment where it's just like, wait, wait a second. Is there something that I don't know? Like, no, yeah. it can't be. A, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it was... Um, that was just the, the culture and the times and, yeah. and the way Steve liked to run things. Yeah. Now, a feature we all take for granted now actually didn't appear in iOS until several releases later, and that's copy and paste. So I wonder, at the time, did you guys talk about that? And did you make an explicit decision to sort of like, yep, let's ship without copy and paste? And was that contentious? Because on the surface, yeah. it would seem like that's contentious. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. Uh, but one of the other things that we were really expert at uh, to bring back the word that we uh, uh, talked about earlier was focus. Yeah. Uh, in that we were very, very good 
really very, very early in the development process to say what was in and what was out. Mm. Right. Physical uh, keyboard out. That was super early. That's right. Very, very early. Yeah. And that uh, it was clear that this was, that getting the text entry uh, system working at all mm. was going to be one of the real challenges. Mm. Uh, I mean, I got used to being in the team meetings uh, where Henri, when, team engineering meetings, uh, again, everybody's in the room, so you know, we've got 20 people in the room, and Henri is up at the, uh, you know, up at the uh, front of the room, and he's got a, you know, a keynote uh, 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 slide deck, mm. and uh, he's saying, okay, big challenges, well, keyboard, of course, yeah. you know, and then whatever other challenge there may have been, and those yeah. challenges came and went, but keyboard was just a constant throughout the whole uh, you know, 18-month development cycle. And so uh, we knew that we wanted cut, copy, paste, but we knew that there was simply not going to be time for mm. it. So we didn't spend uh, any real development effort on it. The one thing that I did uh, 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 implement for the first iPhone was um, the loop. So you, yep. you press and hold, and, and it would give that little magnifying glass above your finger that would show... Uh, and the whole idea of that is that we wanted your finger to be right where mm. the insertion point, you know, the little cursor would, would, would move. Yeah. And so then we needed to show you yeah. what, uh, and so this was an idea that I came up with. Uh, but then there was no time to, to capitalize that and expand on that yeah. to do cut, copy, paste. And it even got mm. delayed an extra year That's right. yeah. because... Uh, in the second year, after we did the initial release of the iPhone, and then we had that six-month delay before we did the first customer shipments, and then, uh, then that whole next year was taken up by uh, making uh, uh, third-party APIs. Mm -hmm. Yep. It, uh, so two releases before you right. had copy and paste. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so I, I want to get right into this because, so look, Apple was famous for having exquis exquisite taste around the design trade-offs. Hmm. And a feature like copy and paste kind of feels like, wait, you're arguing against copy and paste? Like, that's not a great user experience. And so, like, how did the, uh, the argument evolve? And sort of the, the big setup is, look, uh, there's taste, taste making, making hard decisions like this. And then there's sort of another style of decision making, which sort of Google made super popular, which is just relentlessly A-B testing everything. Right. Right. Um, and so, like, maybe the way Google would have come at this challenge is, all right, let's give people tasks. This one has copy and paste. This one doesn't have copy and paste. Let's A-B test it. But Apple made sort of like what I would argue is a pretty courageous call, right, uh, that seems to fly against the user intuition yeah. to, to exclude it. And, yeah, well, it was simply a matter of setting the constraints and keeping them. And, you mm. know, again, yeah. you know, maybe if we had doubled the size of the team, we could have gotten some other things done, but maybe not to the same level of quality. And again, yeah. once you start adding people, other yeah. things begin to break down, yeah. right? Uh, you can't invite everybody to the team meetings. Or you that's can't right. find a conference room big enough, right? Right. right. Uh, you know, and now there's 40 people who can break the build. That's right. <laughs> that's right. I mean, right. You, you start to have problems like yeah. this. And so we just decided that, well, you know, it's like a, like a Steve way yeah. of, of maybe communicating this was, look, this is the greatest product ever, yeah. right? It's a, it's a touchscreen iPod. Uh, it's, the, it's the greatest iPod that we've ever shipped. Yeah. It's, got, it's got all these great features. It's a phone. Yeah. It's got, you've got web browsing that you can take anywhere with you now. And there's no copy-paste. Well, who cares? Well, we'll get to it, mm. right? I mean, in the, in the meantime, you've got this, you know, most, the most amazing product that we've ever made. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and so that was, and, and Steve just was, you know, in his mind, 
was was he believed that the things that we did do were good enough to counter counterbalance for the things that we 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 couldn't do. Yeah. So that's great. Great segue to sort of the next segment. I'd love to sort of take us into what it was like to demo for Steve. Like, what was the room like? Who's in there? Like, what's the emotion of it? So, <laughs> everybody wants to know this, right? It's, it's, sort of like, it's, it's, it's pretty. It's probably the scariest room in Silicon Valley. It, it was. It was. It was pretty. It was pretty scary. <laughs> Steve could be uh, could be intimidating. There yeah. is. There is absolutely no doubt about it. Uh, but. The you know the, the, to get back to this this point I mentioned before of the top down and the bottom up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, except for this very brief uh, uh, interlude where I was a manager uh, throughout my whole Apple career over fifteen years, almost sixteen years, mm-hmm. uh, I was an individual contributor, mm-hmm. and yet I got the opportunity to demo to Steve. Uh, uh, some of the latest work that I did at, at, at various points in my career, uh, because he wanted to see from the person who did the work. Uh, and because when he would ask questions, well, he could go and ask the ask expert, right? And go ask the person who yeah. is the DRI, yeah. right? The directly responsible individual, the person who is, at least according to plan, the person who when they lose sleep, they are losing sleep over that thing mm. that they're going to be demoing to me. So that's, that's what he wanted to do. And these demos were very, very small affairs. Now, uh, you know, interestingly, uh, the demo room for Steve, the software demo room, was this really shabby little room. That's not what you would expect for a Steve Jobs think. command think performance, right? This pristine room that it's like an air, you know, air filter. Yeah. The, the air is clean, or you know, or you know, like the the scent of redwoods or something like that piped in. No, yeah. no, it was this shabby little room with this mangy old couch yeah. and just standard issue office yeah. furniture, yeah. and uh, that's that's what there was. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why he did. Want better, but mm-hmm. um, I, I, the only reason yeah. that I can say is that again, it was a matter of focus. Yeah. He was focused on looking at the software and not worried about the decor. Yeah. All right. So take us in the room. It's a mangy couch. Who's in the room? Let's do the um, the the version where you're trading off sort of the keyboard with the big keys or the keyboard. Ah, with okay. The keys. So yeah. so now so so skipping ahead yeah. a couple of years after the the original iPhone, yeah. when we were then doing the original iPad. Yeah. So this is now 2009, as I recall. So a couple of years later. And so uh, uh, this is actually uh, a, a, an original iPad right oh, here. And lovely. it's actually, it's actually a really good one, which is ah. actually auto- autographed by Steve Jobs. So this was the, uh, the iPad that I got at the end of the iPad development uh, process. But back at the beginning of the iPad process, you know, I would have a prototype that looked pretty much like this. Mm. And so we were thinking of, of well, um, what, what's the typing experience going to be like? And yeah. so here's an original iPhone, an original yeah. iPad. Well, we've obviously got a, a bigger screen. A lot of pixels now. Right? So now what are we going to do to make great use of these additional pixels that we have? And, and one thing that I also noticed was if you turn the iPad to landscape, that screen distance is actually just about the same as the distance between the Q key and the P key on a laptop keyboard. Yeah. So I was thinking, hey, like, wait a minute, we could maybe fit a mm. full size, something that uh, is a full size keyboard on a landscape iPad. 
Um, now, it turns out that right around at the same time, uh, one of the HI designers, uh, uh, one of the, my favorite HI designers that I really loved working with and who I had also collaborated with on the, on the iPhone keyboard, Boss Ording, Mm. Uh, he was starting to think about iPad keyboards as well. And so he had come up with this demo where uh, he had all of these variations, all of these ideas. And, and, and so he, he gave me a demo where he, he went through, he showed me you know, 10, 20 different ideas. But one of them really made, um, uh, really struck me, which was he had a design that showed uh, pretty much just a shrunk-down laptop keyboard yeah. to fit in this space. Yeah. And so what, what, what that meant is that I had two ideas, mm. is that maybe I could use this larger screen real estate to make a version of, of the keyboard that had big keys mm. that was almost the same size as, as a laptop keyboard, but then one that also gave you like the number row and all of the punctuation keys exactly where you would expect to find them on, on a laptop keyboard. And so I figured, well, you know, and I you know, started talking with Boss and, and, and uh, we came up with this demo where we would um, have a, 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 a special key we called the zoom key mm. that would that would take you from this this keyboard that had the small keys mm. that would zoom up to the larger keys and then back down to the smaller keys as as a kind of a complement to the globe key that changes the keyboard language. So we would have this other key, yeah. this kind of complementary key that would change the keyboard layout. Mm -hmm. We thought this was a great idea. Uh, to, to, you know, and, yeah. and again, the idea of what are we gonna do with this larger screen real estate for the iPad, yeah. right? A so software the idea key. was give the user choice. Give I the have user these choice. Pixels. Yeah. Give the user the choice, estate. use yeah. these new pixels that are available on this new platform, this new form factor, uh, and, and uh, have that be uh, the pitch that we make to people. Yeah. And, and so before, of course, you can make the pitch to people, you need to make the pitch to Steve. To the man. That's right. Yeah. And so uh, I got to demo this for Steve. Mm. And so the way that this worked is that um, uh, there was a very small team that was like the... Uh, the, 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 the chief demo review team, the small group of people that Steve wanted around him as he was re uh, reviewing demos. And this was Scott Forstall, yep. Greg Christie, Henri, people that I've mentioned. So, you know, the chief managers for iOS. And then a couple of HI designers. Mm. So like Boss Ording, the fellow that I collaborated with on this keyboard, uh, was, was uh, uh, you know, almost always in this meeting. Another fellow, Steve LeMay, was uh, another HI designer, was often in the meetings. But as I recall, he wasn't in this particular one where I was uh, demoing the keyboard. Um, so half a dozen people-ish? Half a dozen like people in yeah. the room, yeah. yeah. And so then what would happen is that the people like me who had individual demos, mm -hmm. and then, so it's like there were circles inside of circles. So mm -hmm. I was in the circle of people who could demo to Steve, right. but then there was this is, is circle inside of that who would stay for all the demos. Right. And so my role would be that, you know, or my, you know, how I would figure is that I would go in, mm -hmm. give my demo, and then leave. Yeah. And so, you know, think of that beforehand, is that, you know, yeah. I'm sitting there with my iPhone, you know, yeah. out, you know, down the hallway, right. waiting for waiting. Henri to text me. Waiting for my turn. That's right. <laughs> Say, you know, and, and so he sends me a text, right. <laughs> go stand outside the door, yeah. and then, you know, and then the door is going to open, I'm going to get invited in. So I get the text, I go stand outside the door. And you know now I'm waiting and yeah. I'm waiting and I'm waiting and it just seemed like well he just texted me why did he text me? Right. And so then the door opens I get invited and I figure I'm on. Yeah. 
gonna go do, do this iPad uh, keyboard demo, and I, I come around the corner and, and turn into the room, and Steve is over there, and he's like this, He's like, <laughs> he's on the phone. He's on the phone, staring at the ceiling, like, you know, going back and forth in his office chair. And, and I'm like, gulp? I was like, what do I do? Like, Eve, now, now I'm eavesdropping on Steve on his phone call. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, it's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I, actually do, I actually do think that he was talking to Bob Iger. Mm. The, the, the head yep. of Disney, Disney. right? Yep. And so he's like, yeah, yeah, Bob, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I'll call you next week. Yeah, great talking to you, right? So then he, you know, he hangs up, yeah. and, and so then he does this thing. He takes his iPhone, he puts his, you know, uh, uh, his phone back to his pocket, yeah. and then he does this. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, I mean, I don't know if you know, like the eye of Sauron, right? Exactly. The Lord of the Rings, right? You know, the, the great eye yeah. turns to focus on you, and that's what it feels like. Yeah. Um, and so it's very, very interesting then how the demos go from that point mm. in that he didn't want a lot of words. Yeah. He didn't want a lot of, you know, used car salesman pitches, mm. right? He, all he really wanted to know was what was next. And so what mm. happened is he hung up the phone, he turns towards me, and then Scott Forstall was the one who then stepped up. He goes and he, uh, there, the iPad was already in the room. And so he goes and wakes it up and, and brings my demo up and says, Steve, we're going to be looking at iPad keyboard options. Now, Ken, he did work on the iPhone keyboard, and now he's got ideas for the iPad keyboard. So, Ken? And so I said, yes, Steve, go and look at the demo. It's on the screen now. Try the Zoom button. And that's it. That's it. Mm. That was the intro. And so then Steve goes. He, he you know, slides his office chair over. Yeah. And he starts like looking at the iPad screen. And what was up was uh, one of the two keyboards, let's say it was the big key keyboard, the one that was more like suitable for touch typing. Mm. And he's looking at it, he's he took a long time to look at it. Mm. It's like he even did this little thing where he was like, like turning his head to see what it looked like, like in his peripheral vision. Mm. It's like he's just, it's just incredible to see yeah. what, what does Steve do right. when he evaluates a product? Okay, so this is what, and that's what he did. And so he hadn't even touched it yet. He's just looking at it. Yeah, and this is going on for a long time. It's, it uh, you like, know, right? it seems, it's yeah. like one of those things where it was probably maybe 20 or 30 seconds yeah. that felt like, like yeah. 20 minutes, yeah. right? But, but he took a long time to yeah. study, and yeah. then eventually he goes out and touches the zoom button, yeah. and this zoom button to change between the two keyboards, in this case, shrinking the keys down, to be the more uh, laptop-like uh, keyboard layout. The, the animation that Boss Ording had designed was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Mm. I mean, it, yeah. it really looked like they were, like the keys were just like morphing. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. But Steve just was like, no reaction. Mm. He does the zoom, and then he does this study again. He's like mm. looking, at all the, looking at all the keys, looking at how the screen changed. Then he does the zoom again, and it goes back to the state that it was in the beginning. And then he studied a little bit more and, and, and tapped the zoom button again yeah. to see that it's like, okay, there are just two states that we're going here yeah. between, right? We've got two keyboards. I see the animation, go between one, then the other, back to the first one. He satisfies himself that he's seen what there is to see. Mm. And so then he turns to me and he says, we only need one of these things, right? 
And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm on like, the hot seat. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I guess so. Mm. And then he says, I mean, this is, this is again, the mm. interesting part. He asks me, which one do you think we should use? Mm. He asks me. Yeah. He yeah. doesn't ask, yeah. you know, Scott Forstall, right. who is, you know, uh, yeah. he knows much better. He doesn't yeah. ask, you know, yeah. any of the other people in the room. He asks me, yeah. the individual contributor. You You're know, the DRI. coming in, yeah. uh, but I'm the DRI. Mm. You see, that's the thing. Mm. He wanted yeah. the answer from me. Now, the thing was, uh, I had to give an answer. You know, if I didn't give a good answer, maybe I would never be invited back again. <laughs> I'm not the DRI right? anymore. <laughs> that answer. See, yeah. but you know, and, and and I had no idea that this is what, what he was going to ask. And but in that moment, I came up with an answer, because yeah. I thought about my experience with these two keyboards, mm. and I thought that you know, the one with the bigger keys I found more comfortable. Yeah. I was getting to be you know that maybe with you know like four or five fingers that I could touch type. Yeah. And autocorrection was helping. So that's why I said to Steve, I said, well, I like the bigger one. You know, the mm. autocorrection is kind of helping, and mm. I'm starting to get a feel for touch typing. And he says, okay, we'll go with that one. Mm. Wow. Demo over. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, the, the interesting thing is that then that's the keyboard that chipped on the product with, mm -hmm. with the, the slight modification of taking away the zoom button, which was now no longer needed. Right? right? And so Steve had this amazing ability to simplify and, yeah. and, to, and to rely on his people uh, to uh, have a good enough idea about what they were doing and, and, and to, to, to be you know, involved enough in the work that even when you get asked difficult questions yeah. you know, about it, that you, you, you've been thinking about it. You, mm. you, you have this, this, this background of, of just context of having been th thinking about the problem for, for weeks and weeks, that, mm. uh, that 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 experience was then something he was interested in tapping into to provide a way forward for the product. What was going through your head when you were just watching him sort of head tilt in silence? Were you like tempted to like explain things? Were you? Yeah, like, well, yeah. you just know that you, you, that's not no, where you're, you're not supposed to do that. So you're not supposed yeah. to do that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would imagine that if he had done so, he would have been in no uncertain terms. He's like, let me look at the thing. Yeah. Because yeah. now it's like, you know, mm. what was he doing? He was, in my, in my view, I don't know what's going on inside his head, but I, I, just having seen him do that, having at least you know, enough experience with him uh, and, and his approach to, to evaluating work is that he was putting himself in the position of a customer. Mm -hmm. he, ha he was envisioning himself uh, that uh, being in an Apple store yeah. as a customer walking up to a table seeing this new iPad thing for the first time what's going to be my impression of it so he mm. he pictured himself as customer number one yeah. and so he, you know I don't want anybody I don't want the engineer the engineers aren't going to be there to be whispering in the mm. ear of the person in the Apple store sure they can maybe get the help of you know one of the nice people you know uh, uh, working in the Apple store but gosh wouldn't it be better if I can figure this thing out for myself mm. and decide for myself that, and, and see the evidence of the care that the, that the engineers and designers had, had put into the work, I can decide for myself, yeah, this is the thing I want to take home with me, yeah. right? Yeah. So obviously, if you have a leader like Steve that's that into being able to emulate the user who has great taste, like you want to make this person benevolent design dictator for life, right? Um, 
Now, the downside of that, you know, Silicon Valley is getting a lot of criticism for these sort of super charismatic, reality distortion field generating CEOs where, like, you might not agree with them, right? And, you know, in the uh, sort of ultimate downside case, there's sort of just too much worship, hero worship of CEOs. Like, do you think that ever became part of the Apple culture? Right, sort of the blind obedience to the the fearless leader. Yeah, I think I, I, I yeah. think the Steve's reputation yeah. and his success causes people to draw the wrong conclusions, mm. to, to 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 take away the wrong lessons. Yeah. Um, I, I think that if you go back and look. At, at on YouTube of old videos with Steve, maybe you know on stage with Walt Mossberg and Kara yeah. Swisher at their at their you know All Things D conference, yeah. or uh, I just had uh, uh, the, uh, the the a reason to go back and look at the Antenna Gate. No oh, right, uh, <laughs> I forgot about that. Because right? I and the reason that I did this is because mm-hmm. this uh, you know it's it's current now that there was a a bug in group FaceTime. And uh, Apple issued an apology, say we're sorry that we had this problem and that we're going to be fixing it and whatever. And so I wanted to go back and say, well, wh- what did Steve say about AntennaGate? You know, mm-hmm. which was the issue with the iPhone four, yeah. uh, where you're holding it wrong and yeah. uh, the signal strength would go down. Yeah. And I wanted to see what he said. And it was—it's really interesting. This is on YouTube. You can go mm-hmm. and, and look at it. And Steve held a little press event, and um, you know, he—he he was just very, very clear. Uh, very, very upfront, saying our goal is to make our customers happy, mm. and 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 so that's the kind of lesson that people should be taking away. It's not that he was domineering, not that he was this, you know, absolute monarch, you know, twenty first century mm. absolute monarch now mm. in a company rather than a government, mm. um, uh, uh, you know, all that you know that he had this yeah reality distortion field personality. It's that he had this. Focus on doing great work and 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 making customers happy. That's really what he cared about. Yeah. And then, sort of, how did the organization morph itself to sort of reflect that you had this, you know, great tastemaker who wanted to make these decisions at a sort of very granular level in the design? So there was an example where um, you were designing an anim- animation. I think it was sort of the scrunch zooming demo, and you got to the point where like Steve and Scott Forstall actually. Disagreed, right? So maybe tell us a little bit about that. And yeah, sort of, and so this was uh, this was for uh, iOS five. So this yeah. was you know maybe uh, the second version, second or third version of iPad software, and we wanted to come up with multitasking gestures, is what we called them, so that you would have some way of interacting with your whole hand on the screen. Well, obviously from the beginning, even though multi-touch was something that shipped even in the first Apple product, there was no way that you could have sophisticated gestures. Uh, multi-finger gestures on a, on a screen that size. But with the iPad, we thought that you could. Mm. And so um, you had this idea of, well, what if you've got the home button that way? You still maybe want some gestures to interact with the device to control going between app to app. So I came up with this idea of using this five-finger gesture, like mm. you take a sheet of paper and crumple it up and mm. uh, throw it away uh, to go from an app back to the home screen. Yeah. There was then this other uh, interaction where you would swipe side to side to just go between one app directly to some other app, right? So you're, you know, you launch Mail and then you launch Safari. Well, then I can just swipe to go from Safari back to Mail, right? So that the system would keep track of uh, the history of apps that you launched. So now here's the part that that Scott didn't like. Mm. So let's say you start up. 
uh, your iPad from from nothing, mm. right? Yeah, you know, it's a, you take it out of the box and you bring it home. And yeah, you launch Mail and you launch Safari. So yeah. you only ever launch two apps. So you swipe to go from Safari back to Mail. Well, what happens if you continue swiping in that direction? Right, there's no other apps. End of list. End of list. Mm -hmm. And so what I came up with was this sort of morphing, stretching, rubbery distortion Mm -hmm. of the app to um, show you that you were at the end of the list. And it would kind of do this bloop, bloop, bloop Mm. sort of animation uh, when you let your fingers up off the screen. And Scott Forstall hated it. (laughs) He hated it. And his argument went went like this. He said, you know, that's not fair to the designers of the apps because they really didn't design for what their apps would look like when you stretched them. Oh, that's super interesting. Okay. They didn't have a say in what it's going to look like. That's so right. You've taken and, away and, their and, taste. And it's, and it's an interesting mm. aspect to what happens as you evolve a product. Yeah. They would then, for the subsequent version, but we would be shipping a version that added a new feature, multitasking gestures, mm. and it would have to work with all the apps that were al- already in the world. Of course, there was a huge ecosystem by that point. So this was Scott's argument, is that mm. the designers, you, you, you've done something to the designers that they couldn't really have accounted for yeah. in the design of their apps. Yeah. Okay, so I got the d- chance to demo this to Steve too, and I remember yeah. that Steve, what he did was uh, he had the iPad in his lap, so he was sitting like this uh, and, and doing the, uh, the gestures, trying them side to side and whatever, and when he just discovered mm. by himself this rubbery animation, end of list animation, yeah. He did it, he did it again, and he didn't look up. He said, this is Apple. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So it was a pretty good moment and for me. And you stop yourself from like, doing the victory lap. Look at that! He thought that it was, you know, yeah. in the, it, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of tapping into the, uh, excuse me, the little sort of whimsical, yeah. whimsical aspect that went all the way back to sort of like the Happy Mac on yeah. the original Macintosh, right. right? That it was this whimsical yeah. little animation that showed that the, the system has this playful character to it, and that was an aspect that he really loved. And mm. so, um, and it also just goes to show that there could be disputes, even up at the, at the mm. highest level. Uh, Scott knew that I was very excited about this feature and mm. wanted to show Steve, so he, he let me. Yeah. Uh, and Steve was the one who had the final vote, and, yeah. and he, he sided with me in that, that, that instance. Mm. And do you feel like that slowed decision-making down at all in the org, where basically we're just going to wait for Steve to decide? So, like... Why bother making a decision? See, yeah. see, but, but again, the mm. uh, DRIs were were responsible. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you you needed you needed to bring him proposals. Yeah, right. The, the you know you might think of that that uh, that keyboard uh, demo example was well we were bringing him two keyboards and we wanted him to pick which one. No, that wasn't it. We were we were presenting him mm. with a design we wanted to ship in the product. The design was going to have these two keyboards. He was the one who unpacked it and to say we only wanted one of these. So no, and, mm. and, and the, the point is, is that if you brought him shoddy work mm. that was like you know, the equivalent of a shoulder shrug, mm. yeah, Steve, we've got five things, we don't really know which mm. one we think we like, yeah. That was a way to 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 never get invited back to a demo, right? It's a way to get invi- not invited yeah. back to the demo, and that yeah. was the way that Scott Forstall then would have gotten blowback from Steve offline. Yeah. 
to say, Scott, why aren't you yeah. presenting me with solid designs? Mm. I'm not here wasting my time. I want to see uh, the, that, the, 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 the full result of that bottom-up process so that he could then give his top-down approval, disapproval, no, send this back for more work with specific feedback on what to change. That was the outcome of every demo with Steve. Approved, mm. not approved, mm. Give, bring me something different next time. Or, not approved, give me these specific changes. It was one of those three things. Mm. So Steve himself is sort of legendary for sort of fusing liberal arts and engineering thinking, right? And if you think about the classic Silicon Valley stereotype, companies are a lot more about like the pedigreed computer science engineer, right? Like that's the stereotype of like, that's what we're looking for now. But your own background and other people at Apple who have sort of had the valued liberal arts and engineering degree, talk about like what are the advantages of sort of melding the traditions? What's an example of a decision that got made that was a better decision? Because you're well, sort of I mean, it, it's it, it, it's all the the the, the process of um, designing experiences for people that mm. are useful and meaningful. Mm. Right? And I think that how do we define what's useful and meaningful? Well, we look to literature, right? Mm -hmm. We look to philosophy, yeah. right? We, we, we look to art, we look to the creative media, yeah. right? Yeah. To decide what's useful and meaningful. And so, you know, I, I think, and, and, you know, I don't know, I didn't know Steve well enough to, to know what he thought, but. Uh, the, the culture uh, that he helped to create and, and, and that I found my, my place in that culture was you know, the, the part of the approach was that, that these devices are part of people's lives, mm. right? Uh, more and more now to the extent that now, uh, right, we, we, we think that there's a, a problem with the number amount of time that we're spending looking at these screens, mm. right? That we need now apps and, 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 and features on the phone to, to help us track. Correct. Too right? much screen time. Too maybe. much screen time, right? And so if, if we're going to have this, this, this object, this device, these experiences that are, that are so important to us, so deeply ingrained, uh, well, then they, they, it, it requires, I think, the, the care and attention mm -hmm. and, and the thought about it's not just a technology artifact. It's, it's a social artifact, yeah. right? It's, um, it's, 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 it's a human artifact, yeah. right? And so that's where liberal arts... Uh, comes in. Yes, mm -hmm. you do need to have the technological background mm -hmm. to come up with the hardware and the software right. and, and the networking and the mm -hmm. services to get everything packed together so that a product like this is possible. But if you, you know, you're going to ask, well, well, what is it good for? You know, why do we do this feature rather than that feature? I think that, yeah, that, uh, that, that's, that's a liberal arts process. Mm -hmm. Tell the story, if you would, of how you guys arrived at the... Um, the home screen app icon size, right? Huh. There's a, a fun liberal arts twist to this. Right? Yeah. So okay. Yeah. So so now you know, going back uh, to to a phone that looks uh, more like this is my, my original iPhone that I still have. Mm. Um, so you know, this is the screen size that we were that we were dealing with. Now one of the uh, you, know, you know again now jumping back all the way to 2005, uh, 18 months out from the you know the, the product announcement. Uh, we were still in the early stages of trying to figure out 
well, what is the home screen of, of apps going to look like and how is it going to work? And one of the fundamental questions that we had was, well, how big should the icons be? Mm-hmm. And again, I, I mentioned before this apprehension of touching targets that were smaller than your finger. Mm-hmm. And, and we were still in the phase where we didn't know how big on-screen objects should be. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we had some experiments, but this was still, we didn't have a good handle on it. And so one of the engineers in the hallway had an idea. Mm. Um, and his name was Scott Hers. He was uh, doing work on Springboard, the icon launching program himself. Um, and so he had this idea, is that I'm going to make a game. Mm. It's the first ever iPhone, iPhone game. game. <laughs> right? Uh, truly, because this is, this is a point where we didn't even have uh, all of our units still needed to be tethered to a Mac. We yeah. didn't have uh, uh, standalone uh, uh, right. enclosures yet. So we were yeah. still at this phase where we had touch screens that, that still needed to have a, a wire tether to it. But still, we were trying to figure out, well, what the ideal size is. And, and the game was the solution. And the game went like this. You would launch the game. And uh, there was a minimal user interface. All it was was a rectangle on the screen that was a random size and a random position. And the game was tap the rectangle. Mm. And as soon as you did, it didn't tell you if you, did, if, you, if you succeeded or failed because the idea was just go tap the rectangle as quickly as possible. You tap the rectangle, the next one would show up at some other random size and some other random position on the screen. And the idea was to just go as quickly as possible without, again, being sort of weighed down by the mm. feedback of whether you were succeeding or failing. Yeah. And you would get then 20 of them, and then it would give you your score, mm. right? And so uh, it was fun, yeah. yeah, right? Before Angry Birds. Be- before Angry Birds, <laughs> we had the, the, the little uh, yeah, angry rectangles <laughs> right, so going around. Yeah. Now, naturally, what he was doing, he also wrote the software so that he was tracking mm. uh, the, the, the rectangle by rectangle, mm. uh, whether people were succeeding or failing, and also based on uh, where the rectangle showed up on the screen. And within a couple of games, of course, the game was actually fun, yeah. right? I, I, got to, I finally got 20 out of 20, right? Yeah. Um, the, uh, we, we determined that uh, if you made a, uh, a rectangle that was 57 pixels square, that pretty much everybody could tap it 100% of the time. No matter where it was, again, since you were going quickly, you could tap it comfortably. And that number, he just then, since he was working on Springboard and it was his game, it was his app, he put that number into the app. He made the pixel 57 pixel square. Mm. And since that was a good number, we never changed it. And so that's what wound up shipping on the, uh, on the, on the iPhone. Yeah, I love that story, that it was sort of a, a game that led to it as opposed to, all right, we're just going to do every possible pixel variation. We're going to bring people in to test it, and we'll see what works. Yeah, no, it yeah. was, it, again, he was the yeah. DRI for Springboard. Yeah. It was his job to figure out how big the pixels should be, and he came up with a good solution, so we didn't change it. Yeah. So uh, let's switch, switch gears a little bit and talk about sort of your advice for young people who are thinking about getting into the computer industry. Um, sort of, you know, liberal arts degree, computer science degree, what set of life experiences, like what's your general advice for people who want to join a tech company? Yeah, I, I, I think it needs to be a mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if you're going to be a, a programmer, uh, yeah, go write programs. I mean, the only way to get better at things is to do them. You know, and, and one of the wonderful things we mentioned open source, uh, you know, a, a bit earlier, uh, the barriers now have never been lower mm. to get involved. 
Uh, I knew that when I was uh, you know, a young person in college, I actually started in college in 1984, uh, I couldn't afford a Mac, right? right? Um, I wanted one. Yeah, they were thousands of dollars. Thousands of dollars. Back there, was, there was no way. Dollars. There was no way yeah. that I could uh, afford afford one. Um, and so now the, the the barrier to entry is much lower. So if you're mm-hmm. interested in making projects, well, just go out and join a community and start making them. Or maybe you don't even you, you can even lurk in the community. You can download the software and try to make something of it yourself. So I think that the. You know, I, I, again, uh, if you want to do something, just start doing it. Yeah. Uh, so that's one piece of advice. And then yeah. the other piece of advice is, yeah, you do need to look at more than technology. Again, mm-hmm. for the reason that I, I, I said a few minutes ago, which is these, these technological artifacts that we're making now uh, have become so important to people that if you don't know anything about people, right, uh, I, I, I don't think that it, it's you're going to be successful in the long term. And so, uh, yeah, read books. Mm-hmm. Uh, read books. Yeah. Uh, uh, study philosophy. Uh, go to art museums. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, learn about what's beautiful and meaningful uh, uh, to you. Uh, answer those mm. questions for yourself. Mm. Uh, I don't think, you know, if you can't answer those questions for yourself, I th- uh, it's, it's, it would be then hard as, say, a product designer to then take on the responsibility of answering those questions for other people. Right. Because that's what you do when you're, when you're a technologist in, say, a product company like Apple. Um, you're going to be making decisions on products that are then going to go out in the world and going to be affecting other people. Other people are going to be putting those things and bringing them into their lives. And so... How do you know what's good? Mm. Um, and so that's a, a question that you should be prepared to answer for yourself. What do you like yeah. and why? What are your goals? Why do you make a choice to make the product turn like this rather than that? And so it's this combination of, of learning about the technology so that you can actually implement your ideas but then you've got to actually have good ideas. Right, right. <laughs> and again, it's the liberal arts that provides the grounding for that. Huh, super. And that's counterintuitive in Silicon Valley, right? The, the suite of interview questions you typically encounter when you're interviewing for jobs are about linked lists and do you know TensorFlow and can you program in Python or whatever as opposed to what's good? Okay. You know, and, and, and really, you know, it's unfortunate that there are so many uh, questions like that. Well, obviously, linked lists, we're still going to have uh, need for those as we go into the future. But, um, you know, the work that I, uh, much of the work that I did in my life, there was no way that I could have predicted, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When, when, we, when I was handed a, you know, a piece of hardware like this, and it's like making a touchscreen operating system for a smartphone, well, there were precious few examples that we could we could have looked at, um, and so how do you have experience in that thing? So again, I, I think getting uh, a flexibility and uh, being able to answer the sort of more general questions about what you like and what's good and 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 and, and, and what your higher level goals are, because the technology is going to change. Yeah. yeah. And then um, sort of thinking about a company, like how important do you think it is, if you're thinking about joining a company, that there be a figure like a Steve Jobs who has a trusted lieutenant like a Scott Forstall? Like is the absence of those ingredients like a, like a, I'm not going to join that company or... Right. How universal is the Apple experience is another way of asking this question versus yeah. how sort of specific to a set of characters and a time in history. 
Yeah, I, I, it, it's, it's a hard, it's mm. a hard question. I mean, it's, Steve was unique. Yeah. Right. And and unfortunately, he's not around anymore. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's um, uh, be a, 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 a kind of a fool's errand to go yeah. out and find who is the direct successor to Steve Jobs. It's just, yeah. you know, it's just like the questions are always changing. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I, I think it's it's a matter of finding a place where you feel comfortable, where you where you feel some sort of connection to what the organization is trying to accomplish and that you like the people uh, and that you feel that you're bringing something. You know, it's, it's, it's again, this kind of this interesting contrast of both fitting in, but then also, I think, providing more diversity. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's an ongoing challenge for, for high-tech companies is that, again, as the products become more and more important for our culture, I think the, 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 the people who are making the products need to be a better reflection of the world uh, as as it is, yeah. right? That it's not um, just a bunch of computer geeks who went to maybe just a few uh, high-powered uh, uh, schools that have good computer science departments. Right. In your book, there's sort of a couple key ingredients that you would sort of distilled the Apple experience down to. Like, this is basically, in, in, in reflection, this is what made the iPhone team so... Productive, and you talk about things like collaboration and taste and decisiveness. So uh, we'll pick up sort of a few of these things on, on as we sort of finish up the segment. So collaboration, right? Every company says we have a collaborative culture. What do you think made Apple's unique? Yeah, well, it, it's it's interesting uh, is is that we were very very good at at combining complementary strengths, mm. right? So we had. This, this human interface design team, and I worked very, very closely over time with uh, a, a, a couple of the folks in there. Of course, there were only a few folks in there uh, in total. And what we would do is, um, let's say the example of, of me working with Boss Ording on the iPhone keyboard. And so I was coming from the project primarily from an engineering direction. He was coming from the project primarily from a design direction. but. Boss was pretty good at writing code. Mm. And I would fire up Photoshop and Illustrator. Yeah. And so we would come up with these, these ideas and we would complement each other. Uh, and and to, the, you know, to the extent, and again, you know, whatever you think of software patents, uh, we, we got them for the work that we did in Apple. And uh, one of the constraints that you have when you apply for patents is that you need to list the inventors. You actually need to be honest about who con- contributed to the specific invention. And so they would ask us, well, which one of you two came up with this specific idea so that we can write it into the, the, the claim language? And, and, and maybe if we're going to take that claim and move it to a separate patent, we know we have to know who to put as the inventor. And we would, Boss and I would look at each other and we would go, I don't know, we, can, we both came up with it. Mm-hmm. And so that's the sign of collaboration, is that where the collaboration is so good that you don't know where it begins and where it ends. Mm-hmm. Right? You're complementing each other so well that I, it, we did it. I, and there was no other way to describe it. Um, and, and, and part of, uh, you know, as a sort of as a concrete uh, a uh, piece of advice or, or maybe a, a, a way of describing that uh, more at Apple is that uh, we didn't have a lot of politics. Mm. It was, 
you know, when Boss came up with an idea, or I came up with an idea. I, it just didn't didn't matter. It uh, wasn't a strong attribution culture, right? Like I, that, oh, that's his idea, and like, how dare you? And I can't that work that on that. Idea. And now my manager is going to get involved because now I'm not going to get the credit yeah. for it and whatever. It just wasn't like that. Yeah. Uh, but and, you still had to have strong DRIs, right? Like, yeah. Right. But then, but that is also one of the ways that just made it clear mm. about. Um, uh, you know, if I was collaborating with someone like uh, like Boss or just some other engineer on the on the uh, you know uh, uh, on the iOS uh, engineering hallway, if I was the DRI for the keyboard, well, I was the one making the calls. You know, and as long as I kept making good calls, um, right? I mean, if somebody else had an idea that they really, really thought they were going to go to the mat and they're going to say, "No, I think Ken made the uh, you know the wrong call on this," yeah, they could. Buck that up, the, the the management hierarchy. But that was relatively unusual, because again, I mean, it, the part of being a DRI is recognizing strong ideas that are coming from other people and, and including them in the work. And so that was that helps to describe some of the character of the collaboration that we had. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for taking us inside the Chocolate Factory. Look, the, the Chocolate Factory did not have very many people, so uh, I feel really blessed that you know one of those people made it out and is willing to lead the tour uh, and talk to us. And maybe that, that'll be the last question I asked you, which is you know, famously secretive Apple Corporation, right? Uh, did you have to get their approval to actually write the book and tell the stories? Uh, n- n- well, no, I didn't. <laughs> I don't know if I was supposed to, but I didn't. Um, and and uh, I, I took a certain approach to it, which is that um, I think it's a positive take on Apple. I, mm-hmm. I loved my career at Apple. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I didn't throw anybody under the bus because mm-hmm. I, I, there, there, was, there was nobody that, yeah. that, 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 I thought, that, that I thought deserved it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I limited myself to the Steve Jobs era, which is mm-hmm. now, you know, sadly, or for good or for bad, passing yeah. into history. Yeah. And again, I was one of the few people who mm-hmm. had this, this, this perspective, this, yeah. this, this opportunity to be there uh, during the time that some of these, uh, these products were getting made. And so, um, you know, again, with my background being in history and mm-hmm. being in the liberal arts, I... I I thought that it would be good if I if I collected these uh, these recollections uh, while I still do remember them well uh, and 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 tell the story and uh, I so I I thought that it was really a, a, more of a personal a personal story uh, and yeah. and so uh, I so no I I didn't. Um, uh, I, I was I was uh, imagining that maybe I would ask for forgiveness if somehow they didn't uh, didn't really approve. But I I thought that I I wouldn't really run into trouble. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you for taking the time uh, here and for putting the stories down so they don't fade into the mists of history. Um, it's been great having you. Well, so it's, it's, I've had a great time. Thank you. Great. So for those in the YouTube audience, uh, if you liked what you saw, go ahead and subscribe. And then in the comments thread on this video, let's talk about things that you might want to try in your own culture. Now having listened to sort of Ken describe what it was Apple, what, what Apple did, sort of what, what would work in your environment and what wouldn't work in your environment. We'd love to have a conversation about how would you implement some of the ideas that we talked about and your own software development lifecycle. So see you next episode.